1 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. 1 Timothy 4th chapter. I'm going to start in verse 6 and read down through the 16th verse. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16. There's been a little bit of a back and forth uh, in 1 Timothy as a whole. Paul is helping Timothy. He's helping him to be faithful, to be consistent, to be precise, to be on guard at this church in Ephesus. And there have definitely been moments where the things that are spoken, the things that are given as directives are more for Timothy than they maybe are applying generally. I mean, of course, there's some things that are in context. Much of it is handled generally in the sense that, well, we're a church like they were a church, and we have the Spirit like they had the Spirit, and we have accepted and followed Jesus like they had. But there are other times when I think what we need to do is to learn from the personal instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy, to learn from the kind of avatar that Timothy is as a young mentee with a mentor who's trying to help him to get through his task in the world, to accomplish his calling in the world, and to do so faithfully. And what happens in the beginning here of this section of 1 Timothy chapter 4, this part of the letter, Paul turns straight to Timothy, and he wants him to think about him, because Timothy, of course, had a lot of other people to think about. There's a church that's burgeoning, and a church that is full of false teaching, and people who are straying, and people who are hurting. There's a lot of other people to think about, but Paul now is giving direct instruction to Timothy, and he's going to give him a training program. Timothy, when you think about you, here's how you should position yourself. I had a good time thinking about this idea. He he talks about training, bodily training, and training for godliness, and he says to practice these things. This is very much a kind of training program like a a physical trainer might give to someone. Paul has assessed Timothy. He's seen where his weaknesses are. He said, are you serious? Are those your pull-ups? No, really. Do a push-up. Oh, you can't. Or something like that, right? The trainer, he assesses the person, and then he gives them a program. I didn't spend too long, I promise, but maybe a little bit more than I should have, trying to think of little fun ways to describe this training program. Bear with me. This is Tim training 2000, maybe for 2000 years from that. I don't know. One time I saw people going through a program called Insanity. This is called Sanity. Um, Preacher 90X. No? Is Is that closer? And then just by happenstamp, Stance, I stumbled upon the most deliciously punny, cheesy, churchy example of what this training program is. It is, of course, CrossFit. I mean, <laughs> is it not? It's like, the, it's like the entirety of the CrossFit movement was designed for this moment. I didn't even have to come up with anything. So Paul gives Timothy an invitation to his gym, to his CrossFit gym. That's, that's what's happening. I'm going to start in verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's look at it together. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, belie- set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's ask for the Spirit's help as we learn. Spirit of the living God, you are present. This is your house. We ask, Holy Spirit, would you give us insight, wisdom? We we lack wisdom, so we are crying aloud, asking you for a spirit of wisdom, the kind that is pure and peaceable that comes from above. Give us wisdom and insight to know how to properly train ourselves. I pray, God, that we would not shrink back from these words. There's difficult words here, there's strive and toil and train and practice and persist. And so, God, I I ask that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit a kind of grittiness in our faith. Pray that we would not be shallow or weak or easily thrown. And that this kind of training that's been given to Timothy as a program, that it would be transferred to us. We thank you for the opportunity to learn, to think together, so help us to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give a few big parts of the training program. These are sort of like big, like maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something like that, right? I'm going to show my, uh, my lack of at least recent experience in, uh, in workout programs by not knowing exactly. I don't know what all the rage is now. I don't know if it's workout seven times a day, seven days a week, or once a week, or once a month, or once a year, or whatever it is. I don't know. I don't know the whole program, but let me just tack these on as though they'd be like a a Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of headings, right? The first is going to be, Paul says to Timothy, and there's a big heading here, big category with a few things to do. He's going to say, remember. Remember. And I think that's going to relate to our motivations for training. Any of us who have considered training, whether for godliness or for bodily training, realize that motivations are a huge part of it. And so Paul says to Timothy, hey, you're going to need to train. First big category, I want you to remember. So that's one category. Second, he's going to say to proclaim some things, to continue to teach some things, to put some things forward. These are some principles or some ideas, some things you know to be true about the practice of your training. Help others and thereby help yourself. That's going to be kind of the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. And then finally, the last one is going to be to practice. I think you could substitute that word to persist, to just keep going. 
So these are big headings. First, to remember. Second, to proclaim. And then finally, the end, to persist in or to practice these things. I want to say something at the outset that maybe ought to be said. And that is that like most good things in life, you don't just end up attaining what you desire to attain. It is not possible to dump a ship in the middle of the ocean, raise a sail, and then just let the wind blow it wherever it wants. If you have a goal, if we have a desire, if we have a place that we want to get to, we're going to need to have some direction, some guidance, and we're going to have to put in effort to get there. Work and toil and striving is not a bad thing. In fact, any of us who are serious about making the most use, the best use, the most God-glorifying use of these days that God has given us, we're going to have to put a program in place. It is rare, in fact, an anomaly, that people would be naturally good or naturally talented or naturally muscular or naturally cardiovascularly fit simply on sheer talent. A majority of life is going to be about putting yourself in a particular direction and then you're going to have to give some effort. Now, I say this especially in a church context because the idea between, or the interplay between faith and works is a tricky one at times. We all know that Paul loves the gospel. He loves free grace. He knows that it's not going to be Timothy's effort that gets him before God. In fact, he just got done saying in the beginning of chapter 4, watch your performance. Don't be like those people who make up rules and then check the boxes to feel better than other people. He's just got done saying, watch your performance But he also says that when the grace of God comes, it seems like what he expects for Timothy is that the grace of God, one of the things that he's doing, that that God is doing in Timothy is moving him toward activity, toward action. So the grace of God is not an excuse for laziness. In fact, evidence that you've understood the grace of God means that you begin to move in training for godliness more intensely. It's not an anti-Christian thing to think about our effort. And I know that that needs to be held carefully and in proportion, and it's about which one comes first. So it is a religious lie to say that effort comes before acceptance, that if we just try and toil and strive long enough, that maybe one one day God will receive us and accept us. But just because that formula's gone, right, we don't X out the formula, what we've been taught to do in Jesus is to flip the order. We have been accepted in Christ. He is ours, and we are His. And because of this, because of the acceptance that we have, the grace that we've been given, we are motivated and changed in our efforts. Our works flow from our faith, not faith being built up, or I guess not built up, not our acceptance with God being built upon our works. And I know this is a a difficult thing to keep in tension because, quite frankly, the moment that sometimes some of us start to train ourselves for godliness, we fall straight back to the effort world. 
but because Scripture tells us that we must, we can't let go of either of these concepts. And so what I'm going to say today is, like Timothy, I believe that the Spirit of God would move in us and say to us, and maybe ask us the question, what's our training program? Have we, with toil and striving, have we with effort, have we been practicing particular things? And this does not mean that we've rejected Jesus or the idea of free grace. It means, in fact, that we've maybe just begun to understand it. Godliness in us will produce patient, persistent, but very directed effort. So I want to say that up front as a category for here, because it's going to sound very much like, here's what we got to do, get out there and strive and get out there and sweat. But I would say that spiritually speaking, motivated by the right reasons, understanding the grace of God underneath, sweating spiritually is a good thing. All right, let's look at the first one. Now, you may say to yourself, this sounds terrible, and I never am not motivated for something like that, which is, I think, Paul understands in Timothy as well. And so he's going to give him this first category of remembering or a sense of calling, and it is a motivator. In fact, to remember back is an underrated motivator for training. So he brings up a couple of things in this passage we just read that's going to help Timothy to remember back and then move him in the right direction. He says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is a backward-looking statement. He's reminding him of the path that he has already walked and the thing that is behind him. He doubles down on this thought, this idea of to remember your calling and what you've been set apart for by describing in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. He says to Timothy, if you're thinking about or if you're feeling a little bit lax or a little bit sluggish or a little bit behind, just remember these things. Remember that you have been given a gift. There was a time and a place when the Spirit of God rested on you and people recognized in you that you have been called for this purpose. It is your calling. It is your preparation. It is what God has for you. This should motivate you to train well. He's going to recall the same thing. I'm not sure if Timothy needs consistent motivation or if he's prone to forget or not. Again, Paul is a good trainer, is identifying his, his student, his client, but he brings this up again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The second Timothy 3, he tells them, as for you, continue in what you have learned, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood he is recalling back and remembering moments when there was clarity of calling and clarity of direction and an understanding of who Timothy was supposed to be. He had to think back. And so for us to find training in godliness, sometimes what we need to do is to remember back when God was most clear. Fogginess is going to happen. Inconsistency is going to happen. You're going to lack energy. There will be lethargy at times in your life. And I think that one of the things we can apply from this is to say to ourselves, 
our motivations for training. Why am I keeping on? What am I doing? Why week after week? And why praying? And why reading? And Scripture so often says one of the best motivators for training like this is to remember back, to think back to who God is and what He's done in your life. We have examples of this all the way back to the Psalms. In fact, I would say that the Psalms in many ways are simply remembering in order to keep going. One of the most famous Psalms, the 42nd Psalm, I'm going to read the first four verses, and I'm going to show you the connection between desiring to give up, maybe getting a little bit lazy, maybe getting a little bit tired, maybe saying, I'm out, and how remembering works. Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then note how he turns his attention, he turns his heart intentionally. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. These things I remember. These things I remember. He brings himself back to the initial motivations and calling and the things that God had gifted him with, not only his presence, but with leadership in the people of God. You know, it sometimes is helpful in our godly training is to keep track of remembering. In fact, the connection between remembering and thankfulness, which we looked at at the end of last week, is absolutely powerful and inevitable. It is very difficult to be thankful if you just don't remember. Forgetfulness short-circuits our ability to be properly grateful. So sometimes I would ask people like this. If they told me, you know, I've just been a little bit listless, I just don't know where I'm at, doesn't feel like my faith is strong, I don't know where to turn, I don't know where to go. One of the things they just say is, well, what was it like when you were strong? Maybe something like this, when did you meet God and when do you feel like you knew His presence? When were things clear? What did you read? What did you know? What prayer did He answer? What did you feel in those moments? What did you think about? How motivated were you? What was it like to hope for the future? What was it like to feel as though you were being used in the way that God had designed you to be used? I think in Christian circles we might call some of these things just our testimony, the story of God's work in our life. And there's times in In me, when I I try to be faithful to remember, I'll go back to old things that I had written, to old places that I was, to things that I had taught or things that I had been involved in. And one of the things that happens when I'm going back there is I try to take stock of a couple things. One, I say to myself, what has changed in me or what doubt in me has arisen that makes me think that God is different now? The second thing I'll do is I'll say to myself, how ancient are these memories? And that's a motivator for me. You ever thought back on things and you realize how long ago it was? If someone asked you, 
Oh, tell me about your relationship with God and the way that He meets you and the things that you serve in and how it feels or the relationships you have. And every single story starts in 1986. You ever feel something like that? You think to yourself, like, wait, what's been happening? I mean, I guess I'll just use workout examples over and over again because that's what's in the text. Paul's using it as a demonstration, as an illustration with Timothy. In other words, if someone says to you, oh, hey, I I went for a run yesterday, it was wonderful, and you say to yourself, like, oh, I love running. And they're like, oh, do you go often? And then if you have to scratch your head and you say to yourself, actually, one time in 2017, I did run. I do remember that now. If it's that ancient, if it's that far and that long ago, then one of the things, at least that it does in me, is I say to myself, I'm going to put myself before God, and I'm going to say, God, give me some stories now. Please. Move in me so that I'm not waddling around with a cane and telling people about how God used to be living and active in my life. Do you remember the last time you felt really awkward about sharing your faith with someone that you didn't know? Well, let's get awkward again. I remember that. It was 2006. Especially for me sometimes, and again, I'm going to go back and forth here because I feel this much more than you maybe because you're like, well, I don't have your job. Thank goodness. I feel this a little bit more, but I think to myself, man, how much can I squeeze out of these illustrations? And sometimes they just get dry. I mean, how many times can I tell the same mission trip stories? And how many times can I talk about the same conference that I went to? Or how many times can I talk about this evangelistic encounter? And when I try to remember, not only do they motivate me to remember that God is and that He's good, but it also is a good barometer, a good check for me if maybe I've left my training behind. Remembering is a powerful tool for proper, for proper motivations. And this is a consistent practice. Paul will tell Timothy this all the time. I don't know that Timothy is unique, but he seems to be prone to forgetfulness. Some of the questions in the midst of this, and I don't know why we do this, but doubts seem to have a powerful nowness to them. For some reason, doubts and lethargy and a kind of listlessness, they are powerful, they are intoxicating, especially for the moment. And when we remember can ask ourselves things like this, do my doubts right now in this current moment, do they somehow nullify years of God's peace and His clarity and His provision to me? What is it that tempts me to think that this particular moment defines everything about me now and forever? Taking stock of your life. All right, last little training connection to spiritual connection thing for remembering, and then I'll just go on, but I think it's the most painful remembering. I have a scale in my bathroom, and I don't step on it very much. You know why? It reminds me how much I weigh. But I should step on it more because remembering makes me say, I'm going to park in the back of the parking lot, I'm jogging into the store. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. See, when you remember and actually take stock, 
It changes motivation. All right. It's a dangerous territory to talk about scales in a church service. <laughs> there it was. Second, Paul's going to tell Timothy, here's some things to hold on to. Here's some things that you ought to proclaim. He starts out by just telling him, you're going to be a good servant if you put these things before the brothers. If you put these things before the brothers. Well, what things? What things is he talking about? He says it twice, actually, in this particular section. If you put these things, later he's going to say if you practice these things. Here's a little list of what it looks like for ordered self-priorities for Timothy. Put these things into practice and say them consistently. Maybe for in the world of workout talk, you remembered, you took stock, and so you were motivated and you said, I'm going to go train. And then in the midst of training, maybe this proclamation in this world would be something like self-talk. What do the things you say? And here's the things that Paul's given Timothy to say. He said, remember, say this to yourself consistently and to the church. Warn them about false teachers and the reality of their influence in their midst. Remind them that the law is good, that God gave it for our instruction because he loves us, that everywhere the law speaks, it's to not only keep us from something negative, but to protect and honor something good. He tells them, say this, put these things before the brothers, Timothy, put mercy and forgiveness for sinners in front of the brothers. Remember that I, Paul, am the chief of sinners, but God is a God who is merciful beyond measure and beyond our understanding that forgiveness is a real thing. Put that before the brothers. Remind them of the power of real forgiveness for real sinners. He's told Timothy, Timothy, here's what you ought to do. This will keep you in training for godliness. Remind people not to shipwreck their faith. That shipwrecks are a real thing. I think about the idea of Scripture using the word shipwreck. I think about when I was a, a kid and all of the drunk driving ads where they would scare you to death with horrible car crashes. Just don't do this, kids. So Paul's told Timothy, like, just imagine a shipwreck, the worst that you could, the kind of stuff that would make you go like this. It says, remind people they'll end up like that if they lose hold of their faith. Paul says to Timothy, here's the kind of talk that you need to have. Say this consistently. Remind people to pray, to lift up holy hands, and to pray consistently for leaders in their midst. Paul's telling Timothy, remind them, and you're going to have to remind them again and again and again. Put these things before the brothers. They're going to want to talk about citizenship, and they're going to want to talk about the laws, and they're going to want to talk about mandates, but remind them, how about this? Pray, 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 spill words in prayer. Paul has told Timothy, put these things before the brothers. Tell them to embrace the gender design of leadership in the church. To love, not to run from, but to love the way that God has made males and females different and the way that they together will carry the gospel into the world. Paul has told Timothy, Timothy, put these things before the brothers. This is what you should be about. You should be appointing ordered leadership. You should be looking for and putting into place and affirming what God's Spirit has done in elders and in deacons in your midst. Put these things before the brothers. This is your training. This is your self-talk. The things that God has given you that the church is supposed to be about, talk about these things and remind others about these 
things. He says to Timothy, here's part of your training, put the beauty of the church constantly in front of your own eyes and in the front of the eyes of others. He's told them to cultivate thankfulness, to not reject or to live an aesthetic life that's full of performance. Put these things, these are the things that are supposed to be put in front of others. And then reject anything that might come in the way of putting these things in front. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Don't let them look down on your youth. Don't neglect the gifts that you have. Paul gives him a list, a massive list of positive things to think, positive self-talk, positive instruction, positive things to proclaim in order to overwhelm and to put down the He gives a few negatives, but most of them are negative things to avoid, things that would render useless the positive assertions and truths that he holds. We are in a constant battle to remember, to be properly motivated for the Christian life, and we are in a constant battle to remember the truths of the Christian life, especially as we are buffeted by our own self-talk and the, the talk of the world that tells us to go astray. Constant temptation to get involved in irreverent, silly myths, things that just don't matter. The wording here for irreverent, these silly myths, is quite literally old women talk. I don't think I appreciated this or really knew it before. You know how many of the idioms in our world come from Scripture? This phrase, literally, old wives' tales. You ever heard that said? I mean, everyone has heard this. Oh, that's an old wives' tale. Paul tells Timothy, listen, there's so many beautiful, wonderful things to be talking about. Don't talk about old wives' tales. This idea of focusing on and speaking of and staying consistent in messaging on the things that matter the most will aid you. It will aid you in training for godliness. They will aid you in becoming the kind of people that God has made you to be. Finally, he tells him, you need to practice these things, Timothy. And I love that he tells him to practice these things because Timothy's been given a platform to speak these things, but he needs to also practice them. Hypocrisy is a terrible thing everywhere, right? We all know that. Hypocrisy is a terrible thing. The idea that you would entrust yourself to anyone who only and ever says, say what I do, but not, don't do what I do. No, say what I do. <laughs> do what I say. Do not do what I do. Is an exhausting adventure in hypocrisy that all of us hate. And the reality that we know more truth than we can live is a constant danger that people will be able to malign the testimony of the church because we proclaim particular things that we don't actually live. We proclaim hospitality and welcome in the gospel, and yet we are sectarian in practice, and we like things that are like us. We preach and consistently say that grace and forgiveness mark who we are, and yet we often hold petty grudges and I find it difficult to forgive or even to get along with people who have harmed or hurt us. We say that Jesus came as a servant, 
to give him his life as a ransom that he did not come to lead and that we should be like him in serving, especially the downtrodden in our midst. And yet so often we attempt to protect and to cultivate comfortable lives free, not only of suffering ourselves, but far from those who do suffer. We say that the church is a family, that God is our Father, and we have brothers and sisters here, but so often we substitute the relationships and the investment that we could make here with family bonds or bonds of hobby and recreation that we enjoy more. You see, these kind of inconsistencies are kindling fire. They're they're just like they're ready to be not kindling fire, but kindling wood. They're ready to be lit on fire in a blaze for those who would malign the church. And so, Paul tells Timothy, here's the thing, Timothy, please don't be one of those people who constantly preach these things, but then don't have a life that matches. And this is the odd moment where you get to hear me tell myself the most terrifying things in the world. Paul says, Timothy, remember this, that those who are called to teach and proclaim those things, if they are a hypocrite and they don't do these kind of things, in other words, if they're telling people to read their Bibles and they don't read their Bibles, if they're telling people to pray and they don't actually pray, if they're telling people to study and that the gospel is a good thing but they don't really trust the gospel, that this is going to be a disaster. In other words, Timothy, you must practice. You must follow the course of godliness that you are setting forward. It's been said, Robert Murray McShane once said that the greatest gift that an elder or a pastor or a teacher could give to his people is his own holiness. Now, I get what he's saying, especially if he believes his own holiness has come from Christ, because ultimately, I want you to know this. I could be a scoundrel, and the gospel is still true. Like, I really need you to know that. So I think that the most important thing, right, the most important thing that I can give you is a hope that goes beyond this world and the changing imperfections and sinfulness of humans. I mean, that, that's got to be it. However, that being said, I realize the weightiness it is for me to live an honest and authentic life. That we need one another actually practicing the things that we preach. That one of the ways that God, God has ordained the means by which we will grow in godliness and one of the things that He's given us is the example in one another, especially those who have been set apart to proclaim these things. You will learn best if I have actually been learning. You will be moved by Scripture if I have actually been moved by Scripture. You will have confidence to engage the world with the gospel if I'm actually engaging the world with the gospel. This is the reality that Paul is telling Timothy. He says to him, let no one despise you for your youth, but that's not like tell the old man to be quiet. The way that you undercut the idea of being despised for your youth is you need to set an example, Timothy. Set an example in these things, in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. What should you be doing, Timothy? Well, you should be devoting yourself to the public reading of Scripture. What should you be doing, Timothy? You should remember the calling that God has in your life and then walk faithfully in it. And then more than that, you need to show others your progress. 
These are amazing statements. These are difficult things to describe. George Hebert, who's an English poet in the 17th century, he wrote a, a poem called The Windows, and he imagined the proclamation of the gospel and especially the person who teaches it, this connection between doctrine and life. He says, watch your teaching and your life closely, both those things. And this poem by this English poet in the 17th century, he imagined proclaimers of the gospel, those who were set aside as stained glass windows. And one little stanza in that poem goes like this. Doctrine and life, colors and light in one. When they combine and mingle, bring a strong regard and awe. But speech alone doth vanish like a flaring thing, and in the ear not conscience ring. What we give to the world is multiplied in power, what I give to the world is multiplied in power when I do not disconnect the doctrine and teaching that we hold from the life that we're to live. It is doctrine and life. When they combine, they bring a kind of power that moves people to the conscience of their lives, not merely in the ear and out. This has been known from the beginning. Three major aspects of persuasion that have been discussed forever. Logos or logic. In other words, the actual argument itself. Second thing that is used in persuasion is pathos or passion. You know, sometimes you're moved by the argument itself, by the logic of it. Some of you are just driven logically. You don't even like passion or anything else. You just want the facts. I'd rather read it Logic, facts, is one thing that's in persuasion. Second, that's been described. Pathos, passion. But then there's a third that I think has been noted forever, and I believe that perhaps is even increasing in importance in our day and age, and that is ethos or ethos. It's our life. The ethical nature of the message bringer is a persuasive part of an argument. And one of the things that everyone wants to know is, well, how does this impact this person? Can they be trusted? Does their life reflect the thing that they're saying? If I get back to working out and physical body kind of stuff, you know the old saying, never trust a skinny chef? You heard, you heard this before? Or, I was trying to not insult like a, a skinny, not in shape person by coming up with a real person. So remember Captain America before the serum? Remember that? If you signed up at a gym called Get Ripped Shred Factory, right? That was like you signed up for memberships, like $1,000 a month. You go in there and you're just waiting for the next level. And then pre-serum Captain America comes out. He's like, I'm going to show you how to lift some weights. You'd walk out. Something about that person and the way that they live and who they are that brings argument, brings persuasion, brings power to the argument. And Paul is telling Timothy, 
You have to practice these things. There needs to be progress. You need to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a watch on yourself. And if you persist in this, and save both yourself and your hearers. It's amazing how often Paul, in the midst of a wonderfully fruitful evangelistic missionary life, constantly says things like this, well, let me tell you the one thing I'm concerned about. I don't want to be disqualified myself. Maybe he learned from Jesus who said, you know, that in that day, one day, at the end of all things, there's going to be people who come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I don't know who you are. I'm ignoring you. And they're going to say, didn't we do all kinds of things in your name? Didn't we even cast out demons and stuff? And he's going to say, I never knew you. You're disqualified. What if we can recite all of the formulas of Christianity but have never been moved by its power? Paul says to Timothy, what if you're a church or what if you're a pastor or what if you are someone who is preaching the gospel but you hold to a form of godliness but deny its power? This is a very real problem. And what it means is this. It means that we need to pay attention. We need to put ourselves in positions. We need to till the soil. We need to pray for rain. We need to look for the sun so that we could grow in and cultivate and persist in the things that God has given us and we know to be true in the gospel, to not betray the reality of our faith. And if we do not do these things, then we will bring disrepute on the gospel itself. A couple of questions. What's your program? Paul's just given Timothy a program. What's your program? Like starting right now, what's your program to say in one year, I want to have a, a, maybe a little bit of a sharper faith. I want to have a little bit of a deeper hope. I want to have a, a better practice of the way that I'm learning. I desire to be able to be a little bit more connected with people in need. Here's a question. Well, what's your program? Now, some of these things you don't have to make up. Thankfully, God's given them to us. Well, here's one thing. I gather regularly with God's people, and I have a guy, he's got a microphone on, he just yells at me all the time about Jesus. It's part of my program. You know what else is part of my program? I gather together, and we got somebody who stands up in front, and I take the Lord's Supper because Jesus said he'd meet me there, and he reminds me of what he's done for me. That's part of my program. The question becomes, is your program going to be persistently practiced enough to bring you to the place that you desire to end up? Maybe the reality is to say to ourselves, to remind ourselves that we are becoming beings. I don't know if you know it. I mean by that, I don't mean you're handsome, though some of you are. But we are becoming beings, meaning that we are on a trajectory somewhere. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And Paul seems to tell Timothy, Timothy, remember, you're on a path. Take hold of the means that God has given you to become like Christ. This is not easy. This is not small. It needs to be motivated by grace. But I think of all places and of all people motivated for us to grow in these ways is God not for us.
Do you think that God might answer a prayer like this? God, we're your people and this is your place. Help us to be true to the gospel that you've given and help us to grow in it and help us to train in proper ways. My confidence is that he will answer a prayer like that. And so I want to pray with you. Let's pray. God, I ask that we would we would believe the Bible and consider the relative impact of bodily training versus godly training. I pray that in the midst of our pursuit of health, of eating, or of exercise, that we would gain the benefit from those things, but that we would also believe you that there is a a greater and a deeper and an everlasting benefit in considering who we're becoming. Spirit of God, would you move in us the proper motivations, the right kinds of truth, and the persistence to keep at this. We confess, God, that the the task is difficult. It's met with all kinds of obstacles. First and foremost, us. I am an obstacle. God, help me. Train me for godliness. Help me to practice these things. I thank you for the gift of the church where we can encourage one another. I pray that together, as your family, from one degree to the next, that we're becoming more and more like Jesus, more beautiful, more able to hold this magnificent truth you've given us. I pray, God, that we would not stand in in the way of people seeing you, that we would not give foothold or license for cries of hypocrisy. And I guess most of all, we don't want to proclaim or hold to something that's empty and a, and a formula. We want you. So God, live in us and make us like Jesus, we pray in his name.